Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. I was uh, glad to be invited to be with you here at Elger once again, bringing greetings from the seminary, um, from our president, Joe Maidenblick. We appreciate your prayers for us in this school year as we, uh, once again, are equipping men and women for ministry in God's church. We're turning this morning to Luke's gospel at the sixth chapter, Luke chapter 6, and I'll be reading verses 17 to 26. As we prepare to hear from God's Word, please pray with me. Your Word, O God, is alive, and we know that because each time we read it, your Spirit testifies to our spirits that we are encountering a living voice, yours. We pray that that will be true now, and we pray it through Jesus, the Word made flesh. Amen. Luke 6, at the 17th verse. Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from Jesus and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven." For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will weep and mourn. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the outstanding Bible commentator and Bible teacher, Frederick Dale Bruner, once summarized the character of the four Gospels this way. Matthew is the Gospel for teachers. Matthew is all about education and knowledge and understanding things correctly. Mark is the gospel for evangelists. Mark is fast-paced and dynamic and gets to the heart of Jesus' power immediately and all over the place. John is the gospel for elders and spiritual leaders. John's theology is thick and weighty, and it takes some maturity to get through it. But Luke's gospel... Bruner says, Luke is the gospel for deacons and social workers. Luke is the gospel where Jesus is forever extending his hands in deeds of mercy and healing and in lifting up those whom the rest of society had cast aside. Now you can see that all over Luke, of course, but certainly we see it this morning in Luke's version of the Beatitudes. Now, in preaching class at seminary, 
I'm always telling my students that when preaching on any one of the four Gospels, don't spend time in the sermon making comparisons to the other Gospels. And in particular, don't do that if the, uh, what is surely the account of the same story is a little bit different in Luke's version, say, as opposed to Matthew's version. It's not a great move to do in a sermon because A, some people find it distracting, B, some people find it distressing, and C, some people don't care. It's a good rule for sermon writing, so I'm going to break that rule right now because... <laughs> Good rules can have exceptions, especially when they're mine. <laughs> then again, if in what I'm about to do, if you find it distracting, distressing, or boring, well, don't say I didn't warn you that might happen. But even so, many of us know that the better-known version of the Beatitudes comes from Matthew 5 in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, a three-chapter powerhouse of teaching and preaching. Luke, however, has Jesus delivering these same things, but not on a mountain, but on a plain or in a valley somewhere. And what's more, Luke's version seems far more earthy, more physical than Matthew's telling of it. Luke has Jesus saying, blessed are the poor, but Matthew has Jesus add in spirit. Luke's Jesus says, blessed are those who are hungry. But Matthew has Jesus at it for righteousness. And so see, from a certain angle, one could conclude that Jesus in Matthew 5 is a bit more spiritual than the Jesus in Luke 6. And if you think that way, then this is confirmed uh, when Jesus in Luke 6 adds something that's completely absent from Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, and that is a corresponding set of woes. Woe to you if you are rich now. Woe to you if you are well fed now. Well, there's nothing particularly spiritualized about those statements. Having lots of money or lots to eat or being well thought of by people, that's, that's about as earthy and concrete as you can get. Of course, Luke has been throwing down this particular gauntlet from the get-go. Before you can even get out of Luke's opening chapter, we see the young woman Mary singing a song that we now call the Magnificat. C.S. Lewis once called that a terrible song, but it wasn't an aesthetic judgment, you know, like saying it's a bad song. No, Lewis meant terrible in the sense of shocking, startling, unsettling. Because here is a young woman crooning away about how God is going to scatter the proud and exile the wealthy and send the powerful away empty-handed. But the poor, the lowly, the despised, they were going to get elevated to heights of glory that we could scarcely even imagine right now. And if you doubt that Jesus has the power to do all that, to bless the poor and the hungry and the weeping and despised. If you wonder, can Jesus really do that? Well, those doubts are erased in how Luke set up the Beatitudes um, and the corresponding woes. Because in those first verses we read just a little while ago, we are told that power was fairly leaking out of Jesus. 
People with every need imaginable were flocking Jesus to, to be touched by him or just to touch him because you could get healed of your diseases and you could be delivered of the demons that torment you just by quite literally rubbing shoulders with Jesus. Jesus was that powerful, that redolent of divine energy. Jesus was downright radioactive, but in a good way. And so anyone who at that very moment was capable of doing all of that surely knew what he was talking about in blessing some and cursing others. But if there's one thing that Matthew and Luke share in common, despite all the differences that I just noted, it is this. In both versions of the Beatitudes, Jesus speaks these words not just to anyone, but specifically to the disciples. Jesus turns from the larger crowd and addresses these people whom he had already called into his kingdom by grace alone. And among other things, that means that just being poor or hungry or sad or despised is not an automatic ticket into the kingdom. But when you are a disciple of Jesus and those things are true of you, then know that God has your back. Know that you will be filled and you will laugh and you will enjoy life in God's eternal kingdom because the way things are now are not a preview for how they will ultimately be. Then again, this also means that if you are a follower of Jesus already but are rich and well-off and happy and well-thought-of right now, well those things might well be warning signs. Because if there's one thing that is clear about the Beatitudes, it is that the blessings that are promised are all from God and from God alone. And if you are poor and hungry and sad and persecuted, then you know that you have to depend on God alone. You cherish your faith. You cherish your connection to Jesus. You lean into these kingdom promises as though your very life depended on it, because it does. But when you're well off now in most every sense, well, then the number one spiritual danger you face is feeling independence. You fancy yourself as a self-made, rugged individualist. You earned what you have by the sweat of your brow and the cleverness of your mind. And if others are less well off, well, then they should get a job and work hard the same as you did. But if we let that kind of thinking go on down the line a little bit spiritually, sooner or later we may find that we fail to thank God for his gifts to us. We don't pray that God preserve us and keep our families. And, and we don't lean into these kingdom promises as though our very lives depend on it because we've taken care of our own lives already by shoring up our investment portfolios and, and putting insurance into place so that we can make sure that the nest that is feathered is feathered by ourselves alone. And so the Beatitudes themselves are not meant to serve as automatic entry tickets to the kingdom of God, and the corresponding woes are not meant to serve as automatic dismissal from the kingdom. But what both represent is the ability to look at life upside down. 
Years ago, in the first sermon I preached on a series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew, uh, I asked my congregation what Mr. or Miss Beatitude might look like. Suppose a given person perfectly embodied all the traits that Jesus described. What would this person be like? Well, probably not always a barrel of laughs. A perfect embodiment of the Beatitudes would yield a person who was perpetually dissatisfied with life as it mostly is. No incident of injustice would ever just roll off Mr. Beatitude's shoulders. Government corruption or sheer ineptitude that ended up hurting innocent people would cause Miss Beatitude to weep and lament This person would have no patience for idle cocktail party banter. Mr. Beatitude would always be championing lost causes. Miss Beatitude would forever be angering corporate types or or anybody who tried to justify most anything for the sake of the bottom line alone. In short, the person who perfectly embodied the Beatitudes would look, well, it would look just like Jesus. Because as far back as the early church, preachers and teachers and theologians concluded that only Jesus is really Mr. Beatitude. The only hope the rest of us have to move even a little bit in that direction is to gain conformity to Jesus Christ through our baptisms. We get more and more like Jesus through our subsequent constant baptismal living of dying and rising, Dying and rising, dying and rising with Christ. Such dying to self and to the world so we can rise to Christ in the kingdom is what we are called to do every day. Now we can't do that, of course. It's only by grace that we've been saved, and it's only by grace that we can become more like Jesus. It's what the Holy Spirit builds in us, not what we muster on our own power that moves us more and more into the kingdom. But that's also where the struggle lies, isn't it? None of us finds it easy to live countercultural lives. We don't like flying upside down. We don't like looking radically out of step with the rest of society. And so throughout history, right down today, to today, the church is tempted in a thousand ways, large and small, to accommodate itself to the world and to whatever culture in which the church finds itself. Those of us familiar with uh, Hendel's famous oratorio, Messiah, and its most famous part in the Hallelujah Chorus, we may know by heart uh, a well-known line from that song. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ. But in recent years, sadly, not a few of us have noticed and so many of my pastor friends have gotten crunched by a sad reverse reality that seems to have taken hold, but we haven't really noticed it until just recently. And that is that the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ is become the kingdom of this world. The pandemic and a slew of political realities that ran alongside it and sometimes right straight through it has revealed that some esteem a certain version of American culture more than they esteem Christ and his cross. 
When push has come to shove in some places, neighbor love and Christ-like sacrifice have taken a back seat to personal freedom and the thought that nobody can tell anybody else how to behave. But that's just on a larger scale. Most of us, myself most certainly included, we all have private struggles aplenty when it comes to trying to be more like Jesus every day. Do we fit the categories Jesus called blessed? And are we sufficiently working against adopting the mindset of the categories Jesus calls a woeful condition? We all know how uncomfortable it is to look into the mirror of Christ. It may be easy to point fingers at others, but like with Nathan the prophet confronting King David after that bad business with Bathsheba and Uriah, So the Holy Spirit keeps saying to us, no, you are the man. You are the woman. And to that we can only respond by saying, well, shoot then. (laughs) I have sinned. Well, where then is the hope? The grace? Well, it's exactly where it always is. In the face of Jesus himself. Because if Jesus had turned to his disciples to speak these blessings and also these woes, how do you think he looked at those people whom he had already called by grace alone? Do you think he screamed the woes at them? Did he look angry? Was he wagging a bony finger in their faces and trying to frighten them? That seems unlikely. You know, the Bible rarely, if ever, tells us how somebody said something. The Bible isn't the place to turn if you want to read lines like, she said gently, he said laughingly, she said tersely. Now we're mostly left to imagine the acoustics, and so I imagine, though I cannot know, but I imagine that Jesus spoke even those woes with an earnest gentleness, maybe even with a tear or two forming in the corners of his eyes. He loved those disciples. He loves you and me. He wants the best for us, wants us to see ourselves in the blessings and not in the woes. And he is here to help us be that way through his own tender mercy. Sometimes it's hard to picture all of this. What does life in the kingdom look like? How will the poor and the hungry be filled? How will those who weep now one day laugh? If we get a little bit more like Jesus, what might we all see? It can be a little hard to picture this sometimes, but every once in a while you get a glimpse of that kingdom, and it can sometimes come in surprising places. And for me, one such kingdom glimpse comes from the final scene of Robert Benton's lyric 1984 film, Places in the Heart. Set in the 1930s in Texas, the movie portrays Edna Spaulding who was suddenly widowed in the film's opening scene when a young, drunk black boy named Wiley accidentally shoots Edna's husband, who is the town sheriff, he accidentally shoots Edna's husband in the chest and kills him. Wiley is himself quickly lynched by the white townsfolk. Even as Edna is left with a load of debt thick enough to choke a horse and two very young children to raise. Well, eventually, Edna meets Mose, a black migrant farmer who knows how to raise cotton 
and is hired by Edna to make enough money to save herself from foreclosure at the hands of the town's local but very heartless banker. And it works. Edna makes enough money to save her farm. But the white townsfolk are not happy that Mose is hanging around, and so dressed up in their Ku Klux Klan costumes, the, they come to the farm one night, beat Mose to within an inch of his life, and force him to flee. And as Edna watches Mose leave, and as the big question hangs in the air, will Edna be able to make enough money next year without Mose's help, as that happens, the movie looks like it's over. Except it's not. There's, there's one last scene, and it's in church. It's a Sunday morning. The pastor delivers a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, and then they celebrate communion. And that's when the film becomes surreal, but also deeply, deeply theological. First, you notice that the church that had been at best half full in earlier shots of the congregation, now it's packed. But then, to the startlement of us viewers, suddenly we see the, the trays of bread and the wine being passed to a woman who had died in a tornado earlier in the film. The town prostitute is there too, sitting next to the banker who had been so unfeeling in the face of Edna's fears of foreclosure. Members of the KKK are there too, taking the Lord's Supper, and what's more, they pass the trays of the bread and the wine to no less than the black man, Mose, who is also suddenly there sitting in church with Edna and her family. And finally, Edna takes the bread and the wine, and she passes it to her husband, who is again sitting next to her, and he then passes the bread and the wine to Wiley, the black boy who had killed the sheriff and been killed himself as a result. And as the sheriff and Wiley eat the bread and drink the cup, they look at each other and they say, the peace of God. Well, that scene has confused many people who never go to church. If you Google the end of Places in the Heart, you'll find lots of articles and blogs that chalk up that scene to sheer fantasy. This has to be a dream inside of Edna's head, one blogger wrote, because clearly a scene like that with, with a black man sitting in a white church next to Klansmen and a murdered cop, well, that has to be a dream because that's not at all like this world. And that much is right. That is not like this world. But it is the kingdom of God. And if it seems upside down to the daily realities we're used to, that's because it is. And if it seems like a dream, then it is the one dream of a creation that will come true. It will come true because through us and through the church, it is already coming true. So blessed are you if you are poor and hungry and weeping and despised, for yours will be all the fullness that just is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ. Thanks be to God and amen. Please pray with me. Lord our God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for its promises. We thank you for that kingdom that you have blessedly called us into by grace alone and by that same grace, O oh Lord. Help us to lean into that kingdom every day. We pray it through Jesus, our Lord. Amen.